Welcome to this edition of Out of Place, a podcast collection of short stories where perceptions intersect with reality and the humor and sorrow behind life-changing events are revealed. I'm Frank Schiffman, host and author of the story that follows. I was born in Pittsburgh and I've lived here all my life. Over the years, my jobs have taken me to all parts of the country. Whenever I tell someone I'm from Pittsburgh, two things often happen. People enthusiastically ask if I'm a Steelers fan, to which I reply, how can you not be? And those geographically challenged comment on how lucky I am to live close to New York City, to which I reply, actually, we're on the other side of the state. But at the start of the 20th century, long before Pittsburgh was defined as the city of champions and one of the most livable cities in the country, it was referred to as the Steel City where prominent industrialists, bankers, and philanthropists like Andrew Carnegie, Henry Hillman, H.J. Hines, Richard Mellon, and others built enduring businesses, educational institutions, and cultural centers. They also built beautiful homes and estates in and around Pittsburgh. Anyone driving down Fifth Avenue in the city's Shadyside area can attest to the marvelous examples of opulence and beauty captured in the homes along the street. Further east, in what would have been the suburbs of that time, others designed and built estates that blended in with the natural surroundings. Most of these homes have been altered and adapted to a changing landscape brought on by an expanding population after the war. This is a personal story about one of these estates. It begins on a dreary evening in 1978 and recounts a mystery that remains unresolved to this day. The smell of smoke hung heavy in the evening autumn air. Standing 400 feet above the illuminated crime scene, I watched as firemen in slick yellow overcoats pack up their hoses. They could do nothing more. She was gone, the victim of an arson's match. Along with her passing, powerful childhood memories and a part of history were reduced to ash. An autopsy was unnecessary. The cause of death was obvious. Only a handful of family members would mourn her passing. Absorbing the finality of it, feelings of guilt consumed me. I couldn't remember the last time I had visited. Earlier in the day, my mother had called to tell me the bad news. Her voice quivering, she said, I'm surprised it didn't happen before now. I'm sick to my stomach. I'll come home. No, your father is down there now come over later. After hanging up with her, I sat motionless in my office, staring at the wall in front of me. This was followed by an irrational thought. As long as I didn't see the destruction, it wasn't real. This made delaying my trip home become more palatable. Facing the carnage would mean accepting the progression of time and a loss that would create a permanent void. My first memory of interacting with her was not all that positive. I was six when my dad took me with him to inspect our property at Briarcliff. After walking halfway down the hill behind our house, we abruptly turned onto a narrow path. It led to a separate clearing. It was there that we came upon her, 
I instantly was uncomfortable. She was stout and weathered. What's more, she smelled old. Though she was incapable of saying a word, my dad interacted with her as though nothing was out of the ordinary. While he checked to make sure that all was well with her, I paced back and forth, wanting to go back up to our house. That night, when I told my older brother Carl about our visit, his reaction was unexpected. She's been here forever, he said. I felt like you when I first saw her. Over time, you'll see all the things that bug you now will disappear once you get to know her. Then you'll want to go down the hill and hang out with her all the time, just like me. Carl was 10. He knew everything. So if he thought she was cool, then I would too. With the passing of time, my apprehensions about her did indeed go away. She no longer was an oddity to me. Funny how familiarity with someone or something can change your opinion. Every winter, the hill at Briar Cliff turned into a sled rider's dream. Carl would wax up the steel runners on our sleds. Then, we and our friends would careen down our private slope with reckless abandon for hours. When the sting of cold chilled our bones, we trudged down the path to warm up by her pot-bellied stove. By this time, she was a very welcome sight. As the numbness receded from our skin, we recounted the fun we had just had, often discussing ways in which we would build bigger and better snowbanks to make the downhill course even more challenging. In the spring, we opened her windows to drive out the stale, musty smell that filled the air within. Her floors were swept and hinges oiled. Though she showed no outward signs of gratitude, we always knew that it was our responsibility for her upkeep. It was a duty that everyone in our family gladly assumed. We loved her. At 15, my brother got a BB gun. We raced down the hill to where she sat, let ourselves in, flung open the back window, and began shooting at cans that we arranged on the stone wall ten yards away. While we grew from childhood to adolescence and on to manhood, she remained a cherished constant in our lives. We cooked hamburgers and hot dogs and roasted marshmallows on the barbecue pit we built in her front yard. We celebrated birthdays and graduations in her midst. She was a gift. She was special. Now she was no more. I desperately looked around me. It was a futile act. The arsonist was gone. I felt helpless. Why did he destroy her? Was her murder premeditated or a spur-of-the-moment action? As I pondered these questions, puzzling thoughts occurred to me. Could her demise somehow be its own paradox? Was her very conception part of a bigger plan or born of whim? Only Berthold Frosch, the first owner of Briar Cliff, could answer these questions. It was he who settled her on this private spot where she remained for more than six decades. Frosch had passed away long ago. The answers would be forever buried with him. Now, as I bore witness to the destruction below, I could no longer escape reality. A withdrawal from my memory bank produced a vivid image of her. Suddenly, my faculties sparked alive. I could feel her bark exterior beneath my fingertips. I could hear the groan of hinges as her planked wooden shutters extended 
ushering in light and fresh air. I could see her green roof, stucco chimney, and Dutch-style front door. Her mildew-laden interior filled my nostrils. It was a smell that signified a changing of seasons. No one would harm her ever again. She was beyond reach. Our little house, as my parents referred to her, had become a vibrant bookmark in my life, denoting a series of unusual events well lived. I turned and walked up the hill toward my parents' house. It was time for dinner. Now for the backstory. Built in 1915, Briarcliff Estate was located in the Morningside section of Pittsburgh's East End. Its name was derived from the briar roses that clung from the cliff upon which Frosch's imposing stone residence stood. The house was surrounded by three acres of land. Carefully curated gardens, a stable, and a picnic area contributed to the property's unusual beauty. By virtue of natural formation, one tract of land was isolated from the rest. It was here that Frosch placed his beloved little house. From birth, she was cradled in the shadow of a cliff on one side, which served to keep her cool during the summer months. To the other side was a lush ravine. In front, and some fifteen feet from her front door, was a Dutch elm tree and stone bench. Fifteen feet beyond that, a man-made waterfall blended in with a sloping hillside that was covered in ivy. Whether the little house was a part of Frosch's elaborate plans or a latent addition. Once he set about to have her built, his intentions were clear. The little house was to be a special gathering spot. From the outside, it would have a rustic cabin appearance. On the inside, she would be appointed with glass-fronted tea cupboards, a cast-iron potbelly stove, tables and chairs, and a polished wood floor. Adding to her unique character were a series of small oil paintings depicting hunting scenes. They extended around the top of the walls just beneath the cabin's A-framed roof line. Though the little house consisted of only one room, it was ample in size, capable of accommodating up to ten visitors. Other estates were located in close proximity to Briarcliff. Frosch's prominent standing in the community as an accomplished landscape architect made it likely that members of the Mellon, Frick, Hillman, or Carnegie families visited from time to time to enjoy a cup of tea in the little house. Frosch sold Briarcliff in 1920. Its ownership transferred three times before my parents purchased it in 1950. By then, much of the grandeur that had once defined Briarcliff was lost to neglect. Yet traces of the past endured. During their first spring of residency, my mother and father were greeted by daffodils, tulips, peonies, rhododendron, and rose bushes that bloomed in abundance. Many of these plants were straining to be recognized among weeds, thickets, and wild sumac trees that grew around them. Two stray horses also appeared and began grazing on the front lawn. The secluded location of the little house, which had made her so special, ironically consigned her to the status of a recluse. The Morningside neighborhood in which Briar Cliff was located had also transformed in the ensuing decades, going from a semi-rural area into a vibrant middle-class community.
The fact that the home sat well back from the main street served to preserve its privacy. My father obsessed over old photos of Briarcliff. He was determined to restore the estate to its former glory. For two years, he spent countless hours thrashing through thickets, sawing down trees, rebuilding stone walls, tilling and reviving the landscape. The stables were beyond repair, but the little house remained in surprisingly good shape, save for some vandalism which had left her without glass in the tea cupboards and windows. Her floors were swept, cobwebs eliminated, and old furniture thrown out. By June of 1952, the little house would once more play host to a special gathering, my brother's first birthday party. Thank you for listening to this recording of Out of Place and the story Burned, which were both written and produced by Frank Schiffman, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. The music themes Happiness and Deep Blue are courtesy of Ben Sound Recordings. All rights reserved, February 2021.